Welcome back to We're All Stories in the End. And this week we are talking about Dominion by Nick Walters. Joining me, I'm very happy to say, is Tom Bacon. Hello there. It's a pleasure to be here. Hey, I'm glad. I'm glad because I, I often I feel like I'm strong arming people against their will. Um, <laughs> but if you're if you're if you're up for this, let's do it. I have a question straight away. Who the hell is Tom Bacon? Good question. Um, so this will seem like a very strange answer considering this is a Doctor Who podcast, but I'm actually the head of Star Wars content on Screen Rant. Um, that said, Doctor Who is my first love. I love the show. I grew up with it, part of my childhood, and I love the fact it's it's back. I'll never forget in 2005 watching Christopher Eccleston return on the small screen and Literally, student societies had to uh, had to rearrange meetings of leadership teams because I uh, because I was there. I don't want to miss Doctor Who. <laughs> I think that's entirely reasonable. I think that they need to get their priorities together if there's Absolutely. any sort of question. So it's literally the end of the world. <laughs> it, it literally was. Um, so, as a as an amusing observation, what I have observed. Uh, we're talking about Dominion, which emerged in May of 1999. Is there anything else that emerged in May of 1999 that's in your kind of cultural wheelhouse? <laughs> I suppose there may be, yeah. Hmm. Um, to be honest, it sounds like a bit of a jokey reference, but I could actually see hints of Star Wars fiction in there with some of the uh, race names in particular. Um, Timothy Zahn came up relaunched the Star Wars novels in sort of 1991. He came up with this habit of double I's and double O's and dashes in names. So you looked at the names of aliens and thought, how on earth do I say that? Uh, <laughs> and you have that in Dominion as well. So reading it, I was rather amused. I was like, this is like a Timothy Zahn version of Doctor Who. <laughs> I remember there was, so it would have been about the year 2000 or 2001. And I started working with um, some, uh, a new colleague who um, I don't know how we got onto the subject, but it turned out we'd both read the Timothy Zahn trilogy. Um, but he pronounced it Joris Sabaoff. And I said, no, it's obviously Kabayev. And we That's ended up having, yeah, we had a, a, you know, about two years we've spent arguing about that. <laughs> but um, so so this is the month, obviously, that the Phantom Menace was released, introducing a whole new generation to the Phantom Menace. I mean, I don't know. Where, where do you stand on the Phantom Menace after all this time? It's grown on me. I feel like it's got some brilliant ideas in there. But they're all a little bit disjointed. They don't quite connect. It's like there's two or three different movies that any one of them would be really good. But linked together, they don't quite work and they don't quite flow. The tattooing stuff is fascinating, but it doesn't sit well with the politics of Coruscant and with the, ta with the Naboo 
crisis. It's the whole, the Phantom Menace as a whole, to me, doesn't quite work. But it has grown on me an awful lot. There's been an incredible number of tie-ins from Disney. And they've fleshed out all the characters and added more depth to different scenes and sometimes presented a different window on the same scene that's in the movies. And you find yourself unable to watch the film without remembering, and this is going on here. And this is why they're doing that, because of this tie-in book here. And I think Disney's done a really good job, actually, adding that extra depth to The Phantom Menace particularly. I think I did an article on it once, actually, on just that one film they've really done a solid job on i think hmm cool yeah so um so while that was in cinemas and conquering the world and it was in every happy meal for for approximately six months uh the bbc were also publishing these doctor who books now were you were you reading them at the time or have you come to them lately you were reading them at the time one a month i've been collecting them since uh, the virgin new adventures oh good so lad yes right from the start welcome to Welcome to my therapy group for everyone who's been in that position. This is the first time I've read Dominion, so uh, your expertise will be greatly appreciated. So, an interesting time with the books. I liked how they had a semblance, a sort of an art going on for the Eighth Doctor. At the same time, I've got to be honest, this was the period where I engaged the least because I just didn't connect to fits. He somehow didn't quite work for me. I think it was that as a teenager at the time, I couldn't connect with someone from here's this 1960s and you got the you're never quite sure how old he is. That was the strange thing, because long periods of time seemed to pass in one book. And then in the next, he was acting like he was still a teenager from the 1960s. And very strange. That's (laughs) fascinating because. um if you don't mind me saying so that's a that's an outlier of an opinion everyone seems to love fits he's <laughs> you know second only to uh, dame summerfield in people's uh, estimation i was lucky when i was at university there was a guy who must have been in his late 30s who looked terribly haggard smoked a lot uh, rings <laughs> under his eyes sort of um very defeated uh, atmosphere about him so he was always my kind of visual uh ah, yes. representation of fits so um so did that did that persist or did you did you did he warm he on you on me mm. he did grow on me towards the end i liked the dynamic with him and compassion a lot more that really drew me in um i think it was just something about that initial version of fits i didn't have that image of him in my mind for me doctor who is a very visual series so when i'm reading a book i want to have a picture of what this character looks like and fits i just i struggled certainly for those first for that first period i really struggled to have this solid picture especially with the age that was the thing that kept doing it i couldn't work out how old he was supposed to be i did love him in demontage that was my favorite of his um i love that story is that because that's where Fitz gets to do everything that character is capable of in terms of, you know, pretending to be a kind of inept James Bond? He doesn't aim to be an inept James Bond. He is an inept James Bond. Um, the, the writer there really has a bit of fun with the character. But, yeah, I think a lot of the time in the first handful of Fitz books, he is... Uh, 
I mean, he's fairly well handled. He's fairly uniformly presented, but until he's bedded in, and I think while he's paired with Sam, who is, I would say, less popular of a companion, yes, yes. there is that, that issue. And this is kind of a, a Sam light book. She doesn't appear in the first third of the book. Yes. It's about page 100 before she turns up. And I was reading this thinking by about page 90 i was fairly confident that she wasn't going to appear at all and <laughs> and whether or not this is this is true it certainly feels to me like it's become a bit of a trope at this point that the writers really don't want to do anything with sam were you a sam jones fan i liked her in this, in some stories again i felt that when a writer had a real grasp on what they wanted to do with her then it worked but there were also periods where she just she felt like she was just shoved into whatever box the writers wanted for this story at this moment. And at those times she felt too generic. Um, so I had a bit of a mixed reaction. I enjoyed the eight doctors, which introduced her um, just because it was Terence Dix. You know, she was a character introduced in a Terence Dix book. So that immediately sold me on her. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, there was a bit of a comedy background there. So. Yeah, I was initially fine. I like in I was reading Vampire Science the other day and I really like how that book deals with her as this teenager who's trying to be cool and trying to be part of the Doctor's world, but really is out of her depth and doesn't want to admit it. <laughs> um, I like that kind of portrayal of Sam, but I think that that was lost as it went on, unfortunately. I think a fish out of water kind of character works and that's what Fitz eventually became. Uh, so once Fitz became the fish out of water, Sam lost that role completely. And then the writers don't quite know what to do with her to me. I think so. And I think the other problem, um, and, and you alluded to it yourself when you were talking about your trouble with Fitz, if you don't have someone in mind, yeah. it's very hard to bond with these characters and, you know, um, Benny Summerfield, a lot of people went with Emma Thompson because that was what Paul Cornell told us through the, you know, through back channels that we should be imagining or or whoever. But it was a lot easier to get a handle on her. And Sam, I think, is the of all the companions that were created in either the New Adventures or the BBC books. I think Sam is the one who... I have have let you know I've got nothing I've got no idea she's basically at the time if you'd asked me ironically I would have said well uh, someone like Billy Piper <laughs> you know yes, um, but you know let's not let's not shoot yeah. your bolt there young Ian she has she has better work in her future so <laughs> yeah Sam unfortunately I think just kind of became this kind of um annoying crusading animal rights vegetarian who went to the gym every 30 pages and didn't get a great crack of the whip but but to be fair she got a she often got a better crack of the whip than she does here because as i said she doesn't appear at all um what let's let's sort of turn our attention to the the story so we're in sweden so it's all very uh noir. What did you think of, let's look at maybe that first third of the book where it's just the Doctor and Fitz and um, and the locals. What, how, what did you make of the story? I think it's an interesting one, giving the Doctor no TARDIS, 
and seeing the effect that the TARDIS, the absence of the TARDIS has on him is a really interesting idea. The idea that the TARDIS will die if it doesn't have its telepathic link with him restored. That's quite an interesting one because it implies this symbiosis between the two. And it's only when the TARDIS is restored that the Doctor is restored. And I really like that subtle idea that's going on there, that the Doctor and the TARDIS, they're linked literally in mind and heart and everything diminish one you diminish the other and so this the doctor is there making mistakes i love how um one of the eighth doctor sort of tropes they had was him being able to just glance at somebody and see their future Mm. and i love that they play that in this one you know he gets it wrong and he's absolutely shaken because he's just predicted how this guy would die and then he's dead in the next chapter in a completely different way and you just wow that's pretty cool pretty nice subversion of what we were expecting you know um but yeah i like that the supporting cast is interesting but i feel like the police characters are dropped i'd have liked to have seen more of the police officers and seen them they sort of disappear (laughs) you're right i've forgotten all about them yeah they're just vanish i think the last time the reference is the doctor turns up to the tardis and sees police tape and says oh the police have been here (laughs) that's it they're just gone after that point (laughs) so to me there's something very strange going on structurally in the story at that point when your characters can just be forgotten (laughs) so easily you know i think you're right um one of the notes i had um while we're sort of teeing this book up is that by setting it in uh, in a Scandi location and giving us aliens who looked a bit like frogs, it reminded me very much of It Takes You Away. Yes, you're right. <laughs> I haven't thought of that. <laughs> I'm finding increasingly that as we go through um, these books, we're finding more and more things that have found their way onto the screen yeah. since 2005. Some of them really quite obvious, some of them like this fairly coincidental and probably not really the the inspiration although there is a there is a linky there so we have um we have a, a strange phenomenon which is sort of cutting people's homes in half and making people disappear we have uh, lots of running around in in the forest we have um obstructive and belligerent locals some people who want to investigate this and some people who seemingly don't want to help anyone investigate it we have a slightly erratic doctor we have fitz doing his thing and we have the new companion analog of i want to say kirsten although it's been it's been a couple of days and i've forgotten literally all of it yes kirsten (laughs) so did you like kirsten she's okay you know, I, you're viewing him mainly through Fitz's lens of, and he's got a crush, you know, which is typical Fitz. She's he's female. got a crush on her. He's got a crush on Sam. And Kirsten reminds him of Sam. I mean, he's just, he's hopeless, isn't he? Good Lord. What a, what a monkey he is. I think he'd literally gone from one story as well, where he'd fallen in love with somebody in the previous book. You know, he's the old... Uh, a girl on every planet kind of trope, isn't <laughs> And it? he gets nowhere with any of them. Yes. <laughs> I mean, his his success rate with women is, is very similar to his success rate with cigarettes. He spends most of each book wishing he had some cigarettes on him. 
or trying to get off with someone and failing. And you just think, well, we'll pick one lane and and buy some cigarettes, you know, or, or get a girlfriend. Don't just don't whinge about it. I mean, I'd have given up smoking if I was Fitz. He's never got one. He spends about five years in, in Doctor Who. He's never got a cigarette to his name. Just, you know, move on. It's strange how Doctor Who sometimes attaches certain things to a character and makes them a permanent attribute. Fitz really wants a cigarette. You know, that's his attribute all the time. Now, I'll admit, I'm often the same, but that's just one of a number of character notes I have. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, he amuses me, does Fitz, with this. I like that he's there as thrown by the Doctor as anything else because he's there. The Doctor's not right. What do I do now? I've got to be the confident one. Wait, what's unit? Mustn't let on that. I don't know that. (laughs) And I just, I love that because you've got this idea, you've got this image of him just there. (laughs) Yeah, I know all about unit and I'm rubbish (laughs) at acting too. So you can see right through me. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's a really good story for, for Fitz, I think. I, I really liked, like you, I really liked the idea that without the TARDIS, the Doctor loses that kind of magical final 10% and suddenly he's fallible and he's occasionally misfiring. And like in some of the dramatic sequences, he's kind of frozen to the spot or he doesn't know what to do. But I feel like that idea could have been mined a lot more and it it could have been done a lot they could have done a lot more with it. I say they, the the writer. Uh, it's not a team effort at this point. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. To be fair, though, how well it would have come across on the page if he'd been, you know, like a, a sort of Patrick Troughton figure of like absolute panic one minute and sort of icy silence the next. It, it, so, um, but I think the writing as a whole. Just in terms of the prose quality, not necessarily the story, but in terms of the prose quality, I thought this was was really one of the stronger books in the run. Yeah. I don't know how you, yeah, definitely. are we we are, are we pro Nick Walters? Oh, definitely, yeah. Good, yeah, stuff. I enjoyed it. I thought it was well put together, good ideas. As you say, writing style was really strong. He conveyed a strong image of what was going on, particularly when I found myself being drawn into the the Dominion itself quite well. And I can imagine that must have been quite challenging to write and to imagine, you know, trying to picture this in your head and then convey it on the page. So I think you did a good job. I think so. I think once you're creating this kind of, um, you know, sort of new, new, new location, new realm, new dimension, where you've literally got to explain everything and still try and make it readable and flowing. I mean, I, I'm reminded of Parasite by Jim Mortimer, the new adventure, which was set entirely in, in just such a location. Um, and I think one of the problems that faced was that there was just too much description required, and that really slowed things down. And that wasn't necessarily the case here, but I'll be honest, I did, I did struggle a bit. Once Sam... Um, turns up and you get the dominion i i didn't read every single page of it if i'm being honest you know i followed the doctor and fitz's story because i figured that was the a story and it would eventually link up with sam but i don't know interesting 
I found it worked for me, I think, because the Sweden thing felt a bit more grounded and, you know, a bit more relatable. And then you suddenly have this, and let's go into the absolute craziness that Doctor Who can be. And then, okay, let's dial it back and get back to Sweden kind of thing. Yes. But just about worked for me. You're right, actually, because Sweden makes a very good kind of polar opposite, being a very practical, quiet, resourceful um, and often portrayed as being uninteresting kind of place, yes. uh, which is you know palpable, palpable nonsense. But um, yeah, so some of the aliens that were described were described in really uh, almost forensic detail, and you had these kind of two cones with gubbins coming out of each end, and yeah, you know, and they were they were uh, some of the more alien alien races that we've come across there's no like in the back of your mind often even with something like the chelonians you're still basically seeing a man in a rubber suit yes. and a and a shell but i i think i think these there's no way that actors could have pulled this off these would have had to have been animated or generated which is the magic of written written stories in a way you know the writers just get to have fun and not yeah. worry about budgets yeah and that's that's all to the good. I think one of the other things I, I've I wrote down about this book, um, and again, more so in the first third when Sam and the Dominion haven't turned up yet, and it's just the Doctor and Fitz investigating this kind of fairly serious um, mystery story. Is it felt very much like an X file? Yes, it did, didn't it? Yeah, with the more incompetent investigators. <laughs> yes, yes. I'm not saying for a second that Fitz is up there with uh, Scully or Mulder. Um, <laughs> I know, I know which one he'd like to be up there with, okay. uh, but <laughs> but that's not going to happen. But yeah, I suppose this was just the kind of prevailing. Um, this was just where sort of tv sci-fi was in the late 90s everything was very serious and very influenced by things like the x-files and millennium and and so on and maybe some of the writers of these books were pushing the ongoing story more in that direction um you definitely see that as you go towards interference i think but with C-19 in this, you know, it is it is the shadowy government conspiracy mm. kind of thing there. Um, I like how in, by this time they've turned a unit, this organisation for good, who the Doctor works with, and given it a much darker edge. Really quite an interesting version of a unit where, frankly, they're the bad guys. That's true, actually. And that is, that is a real... Um... Because obviously we've had things like Torchwood in the new series. Yes. We've had a a, a a sort of, you know, analogue of unit that was quite shrouded in uh, ambiguities. But it would, as you say, be really interesting to see like a, a darker unit. I don't think you could do that with uh, Gemma Redgrave because she plays it very sort of straight down the line. But I think there's scope there for someone to do an awful lot with a really dark unit. That's a brilliant idea. Well, you see a bit of it in the Pertwee era at the very first season where he's with the unit. The Doctor is such an uncomfortable fit in the team and Lethbridge-Stewart does things that he completely disagrees with. And they lose that edge as it goes on because they settle and they realise here's how to work and make people root for them. And that's fine. But it does mean you lose that edge that's there by the time of um, 
you know, after Inferno, it feels like almost a different unit. And to me, C-19, it was a way of restoring what unit could have been if they'd gone down a different route. And then Russell T. Davies just went, OK, let's do it, but let's make it somebody else. Let's <laughs> do Torchwood instead and just dive in all the way. And it worked. <laughs> So the next thing um, I wanted to talk about, and this is this is kind of a um, personal obsession of mine. So you're going to have to go with me. I'm going to have to secure your buy-in to this. You're but right. chapter 13 is called So Fast, So Numb. Uh, chapter 16 is called Someone Has to Take the Fall. Um, they're both song titles or lines from songs by R.E.M., and book two is called Hope, which is a song by R.E.M. So I am left to conclude that this is to date the most R.E.M. reference heavy Doctor Who book there is. And I'm not sure how I feel about that. I won't lie to you. I didn't even notice that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, but so here's the difference. Are you an R.E.M. obsessive? Right, I, because obviously we came out of the the Virgin books where you know that I forget which book it is, but there's there's a chapter called obligatory reference to pop song, because oh, yes. because every book had at least one um, one chapter or one one part of the book would be named after a pop song, um, and it's it's kind of nice to see that carrying on here. Um, but I think it, it always depends on whether the reference works, whether you, you know, and if it's a band that you absolutely despise, then it's just going to kind of throw you off the the thing. So that is, that is the risk. The scenario would be if it was a song you hated and yeah. that was the title and you wound up with it stuck in your head. But I was very interested when I looked at uh, Nick Walter's website, and I think it's kind of largely unused real estate right now, but he used to use it a lot and he used to write a lot of music reviews and uh, an awful lot of them seem to be about The Fall, who uh, they're not a band I'm particularly knowledgeable about. I don't know about you. So you would have you would have thought that he'd be he'd be referencing them rather than R.E.M. So I'm wondering if, apart from the two chapters I've identified, maybe every single other chapter title is a reference to The Fall. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> that would be quite hilarious. <laughs> I love the idea of a writer just choosing every title, every uh, chapter title is actually a song reference. <laughs> Someone's I'd, love, I'd love to do it. I mean, there aren't... You, you couldn't do it with... Um, you couldn't do it with a lot of bands, really. Uh, so you'd have to you'd have to work quite carefully to arrive at the right marriage of, um, <laughs> you know, of, of stuff and bits. So the first third of the book, uh, really strong, really dark, kind of X Filesy. Then we move into part two, where we've got the the Sam part of the story, which you were you gave a lot more time and, and patience to than I did. How do you think the book kind of kind of then progressed and, and started to knit the two stories together it did feel a bit disjointed in places um i think in a way i sort of alluded to that when i mentioned the police officers you know char entire characters disappear um and it felt as though some of the characters were killed just because they had no other possible role in the story as it continued so you might as well kill them 
Um, you know, there was no way the farmer could be woven into the story anymore. So, okay, let's just kill him. Um, and, he was survived okay. by a blue check shirt. Yeah. <laughs> but you get what I mean, though. It felt very abrupt in places. Um, for me, the, the most striking difference was between part one and part three where you're suddenly in the unit base underneath the forest. And it's like a completely different world, like a completely different setting. And okay, they had a few sort of obligatory references and the Doctor occasionally nipped up to the top to run after the TARDIS. But it didn't even feel like the same place at those points. Um, So to me, it was a lot of interesting ideas there. Ironically, in a way, maybe it's the Phantom Menace problem again. Ideas... Sort of that just don't quite click together quite right. <laughs> Maybe there was just something in the air in or, or indeed in the water in um the middle of nineteen ninety nine that meant people <laughs> were having trouble joining up the dots. Yeah. Um <laughs> yeah. Let's look at the I suppose for want of a better word, we'll have to call her the, the villain of the book. Uh Professor is it Jennifer Nagel? Nagel, yes. Nagel. I'm not. I'm never sure. That's one of those words that I've never heard anyone say out loud. So it could be pronounced Nagley for all I know. <laughs> I always <laughs> go with Yorkshire Nagel. Nagel. No, no messing about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, what did you make of her? Yeah, she's okay. Um, I like the idea of this human scientist who is just so driven that she does. She nearly destroys the entire planet just because she's too driven you know um it's an interesting kind of trope though here is alien technology human beings must not use it or they'll destroy themselves literally destroy themselves in this case and it felt to me as though it became a little bit overdone at times in doctor who i get it though it's an explanation as much as anything of why all this alien tech hasn't inspired massive technological advances in the Doctor Who universe, because humans aren't equipped to deal with it. Um, but yeah, it it felt like it just didn't quite work um, in that respect to me. At the same time, I love the dynamic between her and the Doctor. At times she's there trying to say whatever she thinks will get the Doctor to help her. And she doesn't really mean it. She doesn't care whether he even thinks she means it. She just wants him to help. Um, she um, she sort of starts off as a bit of a, a, a fangirl of the Doctor, so yeah. a little bit like Osgood, maybe. But, yeah, um, but then dark. The, yeah, a, a dark Osgood who, um, <laughs> when she when she realises that the Doctor is never going to approve of what she's done, she she, you know, really really quite firmly decides that maybe he's not the the best friend that she's always hoped he's going to be. Um, but yeah, I think she was a, it was a nice character. It was, it was good to have someone who, you know, this week's potential Armageddon is caused not by evil, but by, um, you know, getting, getting a a decimal point wrong in your, in your working out (laughs) and causing a wormhole that shoots through time and space and links Sweden to, uh, an alien uh sort of dimension pocket dimension thank you i was about to struggle very very (laughs) inelegantly there a pocket dimension 
Um, now I'm thinking of like a, a, a pocket apple pie or a pop tart. <laughs> yeah, a sort of space pop tart filled with bizarre aliens where, where Sam's been blasted to. So it's one of these books where there's no um, like evil plan. There's no invasion of Earth. There's there's none of this. It's just a straightforward machine goes wrong. Uh, bringing about Armageddon. So we've seen that in, you know, the Pertwee era. That's not a new kind of story for Doctor Who to do, but it's doing it in a new way. As we've said, it's leaning into that late 90s X-Files kind of harder sci-fi thing. There are new ideas such as, you know, the Doctor being linked to the TARDIS and falling apart without it. Um, and Fitz wandering around throughout the whole thing, really needing a fag. <laughs> <laughs> One of my and, favorite bits in this is actually the revelation at the end that the blight isn't the wormhole. It's just the universe naturally encroaching into a pocket dimension as it expands. And I love the idea that it's literally there isn't a villain in that respect. There is nobody. There's just nature. And then this wormhole has tapped into nature and caused something even worse. And it's (laughs) quite bleak, but quite cool, this idea running through it. Um, I love the little continuity reference. It's through pocket dimensions and charged vacuum. Charged vacuum embodiments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like, (laughs) oh, it's a reference to Legopolis. Fantastic. (laughs) But that's a nice touch, the idea that nature is as much the villain in this story and the doctor is fighting against nature to save an entire species from extinction really except he doesn't know it for most of the story <laughs> i suppose that does make for a much higher stakes kind of story because if you're dealing with you know a madman or a, a, an evil race of alien death robots you can always defeat them with with logic or by embarrassing or shaming them but yeah when you've when you've when you're you, your sort of enemy slash foe is just nature and science. Yes. Um, it's a much bigger and more, I, I suppose, more powerful kind of story. Although, if you're if you're making an if you're making an enemy of nature, it makes you wonder about Mister Walters and does he get out enough? Is he eating enough fiber? <laughs> uh, or does he does he like a sort of urban cement based environment and take away pizza another question i should get into the habit of asking as i go on with this show is um you you you've enjoyed it yeah i'm not going to ask you for a score or anything that that plebeian but um is this an essential doctor who book or is it a kind of an album track of a doctor who book probably an album it's not you're not going to feel like oh i haven't lived if i haven't read this book kind of thing there are doctor who books that are unmissable to my view um this one is fun enjoyable i'll revisit it this is probably about the fourth or fifth time i've read it you know i'll definitely revisit it but at the same time i will i'll probably never go oh i must read dominion (laughs) kind of thing (laughs) yeah i know what you mean it's it's not interference in a in a good way and a bad way what's interesting about it is when i put out a, a little message on um what i hope at the time of broadcast is now the sadly defunct website twitter uh, if anyone <laughs> remembers that um 
I I said, you know, does anyone remember this book? Does anybody want to chat about it? And someone, I won't name him because that would be probably embarrassing. But uh, let's just say he's uh, an American with a, a podcast primarily about the Target books. And his memory was that this book was, um, there was a, a young Swedish lady who was naked for the whole thing. And he was very excited to revisit the book. <laughs> and so I had that in mind while I was reading it and I was waiting for anyone to get their kit off. But that, there was none of that. Fitz would be so disappointed. <laughs> Fitz would be very, but but you know, if he'd only if he'd led the way, if he'd gone first, who knows who might have joined in? He's in, he's in that part of the world where everyone's that much more body confident. But it's interesting that something, and I think he subsequently came back and and said that all right, she might have been skinny dipping in the first couple of pages. Yes, she was. Okay, so but it's really interesting how that aspect. Oh, you know, yeah. grows in the mind over 20 years to the point yeah. where that's all you can think about. I mean, if you if you ask me to to pick out some things I remember about some of the books I haven't read for 20 years, I'd probably get things completely wrong as well. Because as I'm finding, as soon as you put one of these books down and move on to the next one, that previous one just kind of starts to fade straight away. What are the most memorable books from the range as far as you're concerned oh let me see i loved um john peel's dalek books those two i'll yeah i still i've got them physically a lot of these i've got different digital things but john peel's dalek books i have to have physically because i loved those they're probably the most read of all the eighth doctor rangers for me um i enjoyed I think really you're talking the faction paradox stuff. Um, I think Alien Bodies is the one that introduces them. Yeah. Yeah. I love that one. Um, Then you're really talking Vanderdecken's Children. That is head spinning. You need your brain in gear. Okay. But it is so well done. It's one of the few time travel stories I've seen where time travel, it's not just a plot device. It's the core of it. And it's, so consistent in terms of its model of temporal mechanics you just they're like whoo this is almost like a scientific theory turned into a novel i love van der decken's children wow that's that's very strong praise indeed for what is a, a book i believe by christopher bulis um and not one that i'll be covering for about 10 years because i'm <laughs> I'm doing these books in my own special order. And let's just say V comes quite near the end of that special order. That makes sense. <laughs> sort of <laughs> revealing my, my magic working there. But yeah, that is one that I'm. A, a lot of people do seem to really highly regard. So I'm very much looking forward to finally getting there with that. And, you know, after all this time, it is a fairly pointless journey and pilgrimage to be making. But it is... Um, it is huge fun and it's um you know if we were overwhelmed with the amount of doctor who on tv at the moment i probably wouldn't be doing this but when we're down to like there were two episodes last year and three episodes this year and maybe a season of six episodes next year you know there's time for a bit more of this kind of thing now Definitely. you know i've been um, enjoying big finish of late for the same kind of reason yeah so what's going on in big finish these days well i've not gotten into the latest one um they're doing 
there's a transmedia thing going on at the minute called Doomsday, oh, which yes. is an assassin called Doom who has a day um, in which to find. <laughs> Does what it says on the tin, then? Yeah, it's not subtle here, <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's going through all these different things. And there was a there was a short comic in Doctor Who magazine. Got to be honest, it's not gripped me. I'm probably going to be picking up some of the once and future ones that are more of a combination of different doctors with companions from other eras. And they just look like great fun, but I haven't picked up those yet. Um, The last one I followed sort of obsessively was Time Lord Victorious, because I absolutely loved Time Lord Victorious. The idea of let's go back to the dark times. And it's such a strange world, a world without death. And you're there, okay, this is different. Where's this going? Who are the bringers of death? And how is death introduced and entropy? How do these things become forces in the universe? So that was the last one I really sort of obsessed over. What I tend to do is if Big Finish put up an advert of an individual star and it looks really cool, I'll grab one, have a listen, just enjoy, really. Um, I love the Christopher Eccleston range. Those have been real fun. He's been very good with those. I'm not entirely sure how they work in continuity, but it's Doctor Who. <laughs> continuity is overrated. And certainly as far as Big Finish are concerned, it's, um, <laughs> you know, it, it may have started out being something they took very seriously. But I think um, as time has gone on, as the number of stories they've produced has far eclipsed the number of stories that the TV ever made. Um, I think it's something they're less concerned about. What's interesting um, with you being a a big fan of Time Lord Victorious and mentioning Doomsday is that I suppose these are the kind of things that we're going to be seeing more of. Everyone talks about this new move to being part of Disney and having kind of spin-offs of the main show and having maybe seasons of past Doctors. So I suppose it is going to be that we're going to see these kind of event series and i suppose if you're talking big finish i was always gently impressed with the idea behind doctor who unbound and that was very early on in big finish but they had um you know michael jaston as the doctor arabella weir david warner um and a couple of other people who i can't remember uh but yeah i suppose I suppose we're going to see a lot more of these kind of things which are not like like it's it's a previous doctor's adventure so we know it's not kind of um existential um it's just going to be there for fun and for extra extra that doctor so if you're like me if you if you're really a bit miffed that Matt Smith left as early as he did we could have another Matt Smith story, you know. How do you feel about that? Does that sort of a future kind of appeal to you? Yeah, I mean, transmedia, it's a big thing. It's Star Wars, let's face it. It's literally my bread and butter is transmedia. Um, So one of the reasons I run the Star Wars team is because I read everything, I collect everything, whether it's comics or novels or whatever. I love it, and I love every different medium. Um, And I'm the same with Doctor Who. To me, there are so many mediums there. I'm not sure how strongly the BBC will go for the transmedia angle, though, because um, there's a quote from Russell T. Davies ooh, back in, I think it was in 2005, actually, when the original, you know, when his first season came out. But he made a 
a throwaway comment about how Doctor Who was restricted by the license the BBC has, that they have to have it so that um, because you pay with a license fee, it has to be a complete product that you can get with the license fee. If that's the case, then they can't ever tie everything together too strongly. They can't make it that you have to pick up a book to understand the story that's on the TV. They can't make it that you have to have a Disney Plus subscription to follow it. So the car story has to work in its own. And so, so that's a bit of a limit. And that also, I suppose, means that everything has to kind of debut on the BBC before it moves to Disney Plus. They all same time. Maybe yeah, yeah, simul- simultaneous, I suppose. But if you're if you're the BBC, you're going to negotiate, you know, at least at least a week. And if you're Disney Plus, you're going to no- negotiate live, same time. Yeah. So it'll be, be it'll be interesting to see how that how that ends up. But um, yeah, it's it's so as I understand it, Disney are putting in something like. I think the last figure I heard was about 60 million. I don't know if there's anything in that. But um, at that point, does this antiquated license fee based we have to make, you know, is that going to change that dynamic, do you think? I have no idea, because in all honesty, from RTD's comments back in 2005, I don't think he'd have been able to do what they are already doing. Mm back then so it really does make me think has something changed in the way the bbc operate and if that's the case who knows i mean the bbc has done co-production deals before um many times it's how the bbc really competes now in this modern environment because with the license fee and politicians monitoring everything the bbc cannot put the kind of money that they need to to be able to compete with say the crown or the witcher the Mandalorian so they need to get co-production partners on board to actually be able to compete the money is going to make a huge difference my bigger concern which is lessening as time goes by and it gets near and we see more my bigger concern was that we'd lose that I don't know that daftness that is Doctor Who you know there's just something humorous and funny in Doctor Who, it doesn't take itself seriously. Mm. And it's not afraid to poke fun and say, isn't this ridiculous? And you get, in the Moffat area, you got these brilliant scenes where they just spin it round. I always love Peter Capaldi's when he gets into the TARDIS and River doesn't know it's the Doctor. And he's there, it's bigger on the inside <laughs> than the outside! <laughs> you know, just mocking itself. Yeah, um, that's not Disney's style. So my concern very much was don't lose that sense of humour, that ability to poke fun at yourself and just go, yeah, we're nuts and we love it. <laughs> I think you're right. I think that's a great point. And I think if it if it did lose that sense of humour, there's a danger it would end up like Dominion. It would be very here is a straightforward piece of adult science fiction, which, you know, is very brilliant but but doctor who i think is best when there's a juxtaposition between a a sci-fi idea and something else that really doesn't belong and it's where they mash together that you get you get the most extraordinary stuff um but before we go let me just shoot you a couple of star wars questions while i've got you here right (laughs) what's what's your all-time favorite star wars 
story slash trilogy slash era. Oh, that's a huge shoot, one. Just, just shoot you an easy one, just to. <laughs> <laughs> hmm, I think I'll be showing my <laughs> age here. Edge of Victory con- duology from Greg Keys. Um, it was part of a New Jedi Order series, and this was bringing on this alien race called the Yutsan Vong. Like I say, Star Wars names, they're not made to be said uh, when they're alien races. But uh, the Yutsan Vong were outside the Force, so the Jedi were completely unsure how to deal with them. And the Edge of Victory duology, it starred Anakin Solo, who doesn't exist in canon anymore. Okay, yeah. Um, and the son of Han and Leia. And he's there trying to break into a Yutsan Vong-occupied planet to rescue his girlfriend, basically. Um, mm-hmm. And meanwhile, the Yutsan Vong are actually trying to shape the girlfriend, Dahiri, and warp her mind to make her one of them. And you just get this really fun dynamic. Greg Keyes is a brilliant writer, though. I love all his stuff outside Star Wars as well. Um, so he just... He sold me on it, and I got so drawn in. And knowingly, as soon as that duology is over, they kill Anakin. <laughs> um, so they make you fall in love with the character, and then he dies in the next book. And I was outraged. I was only a teenager at the time, and I literally wrote fan fictions imagining how he could have come back. <laughs> I, there's nothing wrong with that. We're all entitled to do whatever therapy <laughs> we need. So last question, right? If all the Sith are in like a big pit and they all have to fight each other to the death. Who's the last Sith standing? And why is it Darth Vader? (laughs) Well, I think it's a tough one because I think Palpatine would give Vader a run for his money just because he knew so much. Mm. He knew tricks that Vader didn't. And there was a recent comic actually where uh, Palpatine is displeased with Vader, so tortures him. And it's quite, it, it's jarring because Palpatine's immediate reaction is, Force lightning, there, your cyborg circuits are neutralised. You're a mess now, aren't you? <laughs> and you just, oh, that, he didn't even look like he was breaking a sweat. Now, that, that to me felt a bit overdone. I think Vader would give Palpatine a much bigger battle than that. Mm. But I do think Palpatine knew a lot of dark side tricks. Especially when you're talking Rise of Skywalker type, where I'm not entirely confident it's just Palpatine. It's as though the dark side itself has bled into the real world. And so he's almost like an avatar of the dark side rather than an individual being anymore. Whether that was intentional on the writer's part or not, I'm not sure. But we'll assume it was. (laughs) Yes. We'll, 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 like, like a lot of things about that film, we'll give it the benefit of the doubt. It's all you can do. It's yeah, it really is. <laughs> it is. But in in my head, the last two standing are going to be Vader and Maul, and Vader's going to win in the end. Yeah, Vader would be Maul. Yeah, yeah, just just kick his face off. One thing that a Doctor Who novel needs to do is to hook you in from the start. 
present the reader with an intriguing situation or mystery that makes them want to find out what happens next. Within the first two chapters of Dominion, Nick Walters manages to do just that. Firstly, there's young Kirsten, relaxing with her boyfriend at a remote cabin until something extraordinary quite literally rips the landscape and her lover away. Then there's old Bjorn, who finds that the creature not of this earth has torn his animals to pieces. It's the sort of cold open that the current series has done many times, but it's really nice to see it used in a novel so effectively. The other thing that a good novel needs to do is to give you a sense of place, and in this, Dominion succeeds twofold. Firstly, after we've lost Sam down a wormhole, there's the Swedish locale that Fitz and Doctor find themselves in. I don't mind yet another visit to Earth, but too often it's always London or the home counties. Setting this part of the story in Sweden is a refreshing change. And with the loss of the Tarlis in the middle of a forest, a mystery to solve, and the introduction of pragmatic Detective Inspector Nordenstam, Walters really does well to give the early part of the book almost the feeling of a modern Scandinavian crime drama. Kirsten, Bjorn and Nordenstam also benefit from care being paid to their motivations and emotional state, and the personal losses felt by these characters felt real. Secondly, there's the bizarre world of the Dominion itself. It's hard to come up with something that feels truly alien. It's even harder to describe that alienness in detail on the page without going so weird that it loses the reader. And personally, I thought that Nick Walters managed this balancing act really well. The intelligent inhabitants had an unusual biological technology and reproductive cycle. The ravenous monsters were suitably gruesome, all teeth and claws and bodies straight out of nightmares. And the endless sea, sky, cavern nature of the Dominion was vividly described. Perhaps my only quibble is the fact that after coming up with Tahili and Tavorha for the science warrior casts, Walter settles on the boringly mundane ruin and bane for the monsters and blight for the black wall that threatens to engulf everything. Sure, they're to the point, but I'd prefer something a bit more exotic. That, and I really wanted to see whether Tahili and Tavorha ended up, and what happened with the Queen and her offspring after the Dominion is destroyed. It's a thread that could have used a couple more pages to resolve. Another good point was that Sam, a character I've come to find incredibly annoying, was actually pretty good here. No constant moaning and pining for the Doctor, well a bit, but it was tolerable given the situation. No moralising, just some mild peril, building alien relations and figuring things out. Much more like it. Though I would have preferred her to have been dumped and Kirsten to have taken her place. I definitely would have also liked a better explanation as well why the Doctor was so adamant she could not go travelling in the TARDIS. Maybe that'll play out in another novel. As for the other characters, well, Fitz is Fitz in all of his randy, well-meaning, cigarette-obsessed glory. This is early in his TARDIS journey, I think, so I'm interested in finding out what happened in Revolution Man and Omsor, wherever this podcast gets those books. Major Wollstonecroft is your stereotypical blustering by-the-book unit man. Although it was good that despite his obstructions he didn't turn out into an out-and-out bad guy, more that he was just trying to do his job to the best of his ability. Professor Nagel was equally single-minded, but her actions were far less forgivable, and I really didn't care when she met her demise due to her own recklessness and selfishness. But even with such morally grey characters, I think what intrigued me the most about this novel was the fact that there isn't really a true villain. The Blight was just our universe obeying the laws of entropy. The Professor created the wormhole problem, but it was out of scientific zeal, not world-conquering ambitions. Even the Bane and the Ruin were just doing what came naturally. Sometimes you don't need a moustache-twirling maniac or a creature from the dawn of time to generate an interesting and threatening scenario. And to end up with a pretty damn fine book.